0: Hello again, Ars Technica listeners. This is the second installment of a three-part interview with longtime Wired Magazine editor-in-chief, entrepreneur, and Washington, D.C. punk rock legend, Chris Anderson. We'll start with a rerun of the last several seconds of yesterday's episode just to get you oriented, and here we go.
1: So rather than than approaching a drone as a airplane minus a pilot, we approached it as a smartphone with propellers.
0: Hmm. And that was the philosophy of DIY drones, the community. You know, it wasn't obvious yeah, on, yeah. in
1: the first day. That's what we were doing. But mm-hmm. a year or two in, we realized we were just surfing surfing the wave that the smartphone created.
0: And what was going on in the community in those early days would be basically people essentially swapping recipes. So you swapping build recipes, a, yeah. 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 And and so it was it hundreds, was, thousands of people. Well,
1: initially it was, you know, it, was, it started with the thousands yeah. and the tens of thousands. But basically it was it was um it was a fascinating interdisciplinary moment where you had software and you had hardware. So some people were writing code yep. and some people were spinning printed circuit boards. Mm. And, uh, and the recipe consisted of the following. Hey, welcome to DIY drones. You want your own drone? Well, first... Fab this PCB, then solder on these components, then load your tool chain and compile this code, mm. then plug it into some janky radio control thing, and then good luck. Yeah. Which I thought was like, that's, you know, I mean, that's that's, that's spoon feeding, um, but it, you know, it turns out that regular people are like, come on, can you just like make it for me? Right. And so I'm like, I thought, well, yeah, I guess that is kind of reasonable.
0: Just um, to drill down on what you just said. So from your standpoint, like, this is cheating. This is easy. You know, instead of figuring it out yourself, there's well, just a- as opposed
1: to writing the code, you just have to download and compile the code.
0: <laughs> this is paint by numbers, but the truth is for mere civilians, they're like, I don't want to do that stuff. Just like I look at Blue Apron and say, I don't want to cook by numbers. I want to have been cooked for. And so people wanted actual drones and then that was the next big pivot, right? Yeah. So then they, we had to make a, well, we start with a kit, where everything was kind of done for
1: you, and that kit was pizza boxes um, can, uh, assembled on the dining room table by those same children,
0: mm-hmm. uh, by
1: your kids, by by j- just the once. So um, now you do have, everything
0: they, once. You have you have now started a company. Then at this, point. well, no, no, you're no, still servicing the, the community. And putting, I'm
1: servicing the community. You know, yeah. you know, you know, prepping pizza boxes for maker fairs, things like that, mm-hmm. classic maker movement stuff. Um, but the problem is, they sold out mm. um, really fast, and I'm like that's fantastic. Our product's popular. And the kids are like, yeah, whatever. And I said, you know what that means? And they're like, no, it means you're gonna have to make more. Yeah. And they're like, not going to happen. <laughs> so I, I had to find help. And uh, there was just this guy on the, on the internet in our forums who um, was just the smartest guy around. He was flying a helicopter with a Wii controller. And his name was uh, Jordi Munoz, and um, I'm like Jordi, you're like super smart. Do you, you know, you want to help make some boards? And he's like, sure.
0: And he was just somebody who's super active on the on the. Just, yeah, never met him. Just, 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 yeah, just yeah. you know, you know, meritocracy. Just, he had the
1: best code. Yeah. Um. So he, I said, what are you gonna need? And he says, I'll probably need um, about five hundred dollars worth of parts. So I sent him a check for five hundred dollars, and he just kept sending me these pictures. Where was he? Well, I didn't know. You didn't know. Um, eventually it turned out he was, um, I think at the time he later told me he was in Riverside, California. Mm. Um, but what, you know, to cut the long story short, um, uh, you know, a couple of years in, um, uh, this, 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 which is now a company is now making more drones than all of America's aerospace companies combined, um, has factories in San Diego and Tijuana, Mexico.
0: This is the company that you this is adjo- the
1: company that Geordie basically basically built with my five hundred dollars investment and in managing the community on one side. While well, he did the the hardware on the other side.
0: So you co-founded it.
1: The two we of co-founded you it. Yeah, yeah But yeah, yeah. you know, but uh, by but you know, I met him a few years in. I went down to see him.
0: Wait, you started the company, and it was years later when you had this large concern that you met him for the first time. Yeah, in a hotel, and it turns out that I accidentally created a twenty first century aerospace company with a.
1: Teenager from Tijuana that I met on the internet. Wow,
0: you had no idea that he was, he was that young.
1: No, well, by the time I finally met him, he was like twenty one, yeah, yeah. twenty two, maybe or something like that. But A former teenager, yes, former as, te- yeah, former you teenager. Know, yeah, but when he first joined, he was he, he was uh, you know just he graduated from high school. He was about nineteen. Yeah, just he was um he was married, married young, and he was uh he and his wife were waiting for the child to be born, so they decided to move to the U.S. to have their mm-hmm. child born.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he so he had some time to spare, and so he built basically, you know. On with just just you know brilliance and gumption um, built a series of factories, including quite a large drone factory in Tijuana.
0: And this is a, a still your company, and it's still the five hundred bucks that's running at this point? 50, 50, 50, make a 50 no investment came in, running purely on 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 cash flow. And how large at this point in terms of like headcount or top line or whatever metric you find most relevant? Five million in annual revenues. Forty-ish employees. You and Jordy from the five hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and you're still running Wired at this point. Yeah. Wow. So what year are we up to now? 2012.
1: 2012. Late, late, late
0: 2012. And that's about when you you did eventually leave. obviously. Yeah. So at, so at
1: that point, once I once I realized that we were you know going to do more than five million in revenues that that year, and that he de-risked the thing brilliantly. Oh, yeah. And that it was time to go from bags of boards. We were still selling just bags, basically bags of boards. So people were assembling themselves. We're st- well, the, yeah, they were, I mean, so, you know, the, the big triumph was that we pre-soldered components mm. on yeah. the boards from, because it turns out people suck at soldering.
0: Oh, well, yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so,
1: so at this point, it was bags of boards, but it was clear that it needed to be turned into a consumer electronics product. where so it flies where a, out
0: of the box. Flies out
1: of the box, yeah. exactly. And it, we just weren't going to do that with, you know, cash flow and and, you know, and um, you know, learning as we go. Uh, so we raised money to basically um, ramp up to mass production, move production to an outsourced operation in China, mm. you know, have a consumer electronics product um, and go big. Yeah or go home.
0: And that was 2012. And when was you took early, off, early
1: 2013. So, and you yeah, raised the money and to I raise assume,
0: multiple rounds of financing. And
1: we did multiple rounds of did financing. Points, yeah. And um, and we ended up going head to head with a, an amazing company called DJI um, out of China and um, produced a good product uh, called Solo, but we were targeting $1,500 as a price point. Yeah. And by the time... Like six months after releasing it, the price had gone to about six hundred.
0: The the retail price of retail price of, of, of
1: competitive, okay. equally good competitive products. Never seen a you know prices fall um, like that. So basically demonetized. At least you know the the um, the, the price declines of that industry basically forced U.S. companies out of the consumer market. But fortunately, there is, there is
0: another chapter. There is another chapter, which we'll get to in a moment. But just to talk about about this chapter, so that your bill of materials at that point, you were targeting a, a $1,500 price point. Your bill of materials, I assume, was about $750?
1: Uh, nah, it should have been 750 It was closer to 850
0: Closer to 850 And you are selling against something that is literally priced at 600 Yeah. That's tough. Were you, were you selling throughout that period? Or was there a long period where you went dark when, when you stopped doing kits and started doing...
1: No, no. We kept selling the kits throughout. Um, Got it. Throughout. Um- Kits are the, you know, Bermuda triangle of the maker movement <laughs> because, you know, because it's very easy to make a kit, yeah. but uh, kits have a customer support requirement that's just crushing huh because people will make, will assemble kits wrong. Yeah, well, of course they will. And when they assemble kits wrong, and there's lots of ways to, unless you make a really good kit, and there are some, but I'll I mean, assemble an IKEA bookshelf
0: wrong. Of course they're going to assemble a drone wrong.
1: And so, like, literally, you wake, you know, I would wake up in the morning, and CEO of this, you know, this company, I wake up in the morning, and there's like a hundred to 150 emails in my inbox, you know, directly to me yeah. saying, you know, you suck, the product sucks and, you know, and, you know, and I want, I want my money back and you look and you just realize that they had soldered it upside down or backwards or, yeah. or cold joint, or they, it was just, it was just like, I, I cannot emotionally handle <laughs> Other people messing up soldering
0: uh-huh, because uh-huh.
1: it because they just because because it's it's just no no fun to wake up to those kind of complaints. So we it's like okay we're going to solder for them, yeah. and then we are like we're going to compile the saw so, you know the the code for them, and then we're just going to stick it in a plastic box and it's yes. just going to work. Yeah. And every time we took you know an order you know took a, a a complexity out of the equation, the tech support would drop by like an order of magnitude. Mm. So basically, I'm anti-kit, mm-hmm. and I'm not anti-kit because I don't enjoy making kits. I'm mm-hmm. anti-kit because I don't enjoy supporting kits.
0: When you were at peak hardware. What was your hardware revenue kits and and in completed drones? Did you get into the tens of millions? Oh, oh kits and completed the drones? whole the oh. whole yeah. Your whole time oh, we were on a hundred million dollar run rate. You were on a hundred million dollar run rate. Yeah. Got pretty big. Well, when I say run rate, yeah, yeah, we, no, we I know we didn't complete you. that year. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I know what you mean. You, there was there was at least one month where you were you were yeah. in the ten million dollar month. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you had an interesting idea. At the time, and I remember reading about it, I think it was in the book Makers. Uh, you've written three books, right? Mm-hmm. The Long the Tail. The Long Tail,
1: yep. Free. Long Tail is the sort of the, the concept of infinite choice yep. and all that kind of stuff. Um, Free was the second book, which is basically the business model of the
0: Long Tail, yep. which is the marginal cost of zero charge zero. And then Makers is just the long tail of hardware. So open source software was very much out there as a concept. You talked about open source hardware, and I believe it was in Maker. It might've been in an article that, that you were Makers. It might've been an article that you had written. Um, could you briefly review the open source hardware vision as it was then? Because it yeah. was really compelling. The reason Jordi and I were able to do this
1: is all because of open source hardware and software. Mm-hmm. So our first product was called, um, you know, a um, Blimpduino. Blimpduino, Duino. which like was a- an autonomous blimp based on Arduino. Mm-hmm. And the second product was called ArduPilot, which was an autopilot based on Arduino. So you can sort of see what's going on here. We're, we're building a lot of this on Arduino. Yep. And, um, you know, the maker movement was very much built on the notion of open source hardware because the maker movement is really about the physical, the tangible stuff. Um, so there were a number of projects in 2007 that were extremely influential. Arduino was one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 3D printing, there was something called the RepRap. Yep, British, um, British company, right? Uh, it's Europe, it wasn't even a company. I think it was just a community, but it was out of, oh. out of Europe, maybe British. Yeah. There were a few others, but those two in particular were the most influential, and they were open source hardware. And the notion of open source hardware was that was that the same deal that you could you could um, share designs, other people would remix and modify those designs, and it would just get you know this virtuous uh, a cycle, and it worked brilliantly yeah. with um, with both of those Arduino and 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 three D printing. I believed at the time that that had hardware has every much as promise as open source software I have subsequently changed my mind about mm. that and I think actually open source hardware was a was a was a brief moment in time, mm. but is not sustainable. And, I'm, I, and, I'll, and I'll say so with a lot of scar tissue. Mm. So open source is based on the notion that you have very low barriers to entry. Yeah. Anybody can code. And then if anybody can code, then some people are going to be coding non-professionally. And there's a social incentive to share because you get non-monetary rewards like recognition and, and participation. Now, hardware had not typically fallen, been part of that because the barrier to entry to hardware has been, had been very hard. Yeah, You know, most people just didn't have the skills, electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, et cetera. Um, there was a brief moment around the 2007 fra- uh, phase when there were a couple chips that were out there and the Arduino platform, you know, got out there with a kind of a, a reference platform by which you could hand solder mm. a board. Mm-hmm. It's called through hole through hole pins. So they were little pins and their pins were big enough that you could hand solder them. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were two layer boards. So you could kind of, you know, you could almost, you know, etch them yourself or drill them or or have them fabbed, et cetera. So it looked, it looked accessible the way hardware was. Um, And so we all, the way
0: software was, so the way software was exactly.
1: So we all got excited about that. And RepRap was also based on the same sort of, you know, classic through hole pins. Um, The problem with that whole model is that um it was based on relatively low slow speed very, very kind of you know not very powerful chips mm. which is fine because it wasn't about the power of the chips it was about the power of the community but as we started to use these things we wanted more and more power we went to more powerful chips and then suddenly you couldn't solder them anymore mm. um and the the more you look like a smartphone in terms of the you know the components the more you look like a, start, a smartphone in terms of the complexity of the assembly and now you're I'm going to nerd out here for a second. Now now you're a surface mount, you know, fine pitch, you know, four layer boards, six layer boards, um, design tools that are no longer free and no longer accessible. And I I can't do hardware anymore. The
0: barrier barrier to entry for contributors went right through the roof.
1: So now if you release your design of a relatively sophisticated board, there's only one class of people out there who can use it. And this is basically Chinese electrical engineers who will very happily take your design and compete. And and create a product and compete with you. Yeah, the people you wanted to contri- to to use the design were people who were going to give back. Right, other people who were more driven by the uh, social imperative than the financial one. Yeah. So basically, hard there was a brief moment when hardware, the barrier to hardware, was so low that you could get as that the people who were using it would give back
0: the barrier to contribution,
1: the, bar, the barrier to
0: use. Yeah, yeah, and
1: yeah. and and so that, that that you know that people who had you know, who had social reasons to give back would do so. And then the hardware got hard again. And at that point, it was too hard for the amateurs to use and give back.
0: You wrote a piece in Wired in 2012, and maybe maybe it was sort of like your commencement piece. I'm not sure. It was probably right around the time you were leaving. And you said, if we get it right, it'll be a fantastic model for companies of all sorts. If we get it wrong, an instructive failure so instructive.
1: Yeah. So well look, I I I think consumers benefited hugely, immensely. Yeah. So um so let's let's just take our own products. So we created uh, autopilots um and put them out there and uh, today autopilots cost like 30 bucks. They're really good and you can get them from China and that's great. Now yeah. we don't make them anymore and I don't think anybody can make a business out of them in you know on 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 certainly on venture economics um, anymore, but it's a consumer paradise. Mm. So the Chinese call this a uh, shanzhai. Uh, which is the notion of sort of, you know, copying and remixing and, you know, and, and, et cetera. Um, like mashup and kind of. Which, which is fantastic. Mashups, exactly. Yeah. It's great for consumers. But one of the things about Shanzai is it doesn't – open source has a kind of implicit compact that you will give back. Sometimes an explicit compact in the form yeah. of a license, like a GPL that requires you mm. to give back. And Shanzai does not. Mm. you can you can take without giving back. And many people do. And that breaks the
0: cycle. Mm. Got it. Got it. And so there was, I, I think that you described your model to me uh, in an earlier conversation is you kind of thought there would be three phases. There'd be a consumer, well, there'd be a design phase and then a consumer phase, right. and then a B2B phase essentially. And the consumer phase, instead of lasting three to five years, Basically lasted about six months. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you, the, your competitor in China is a big part of the reason for that, right? I mean, they're an extraordinary company, aren't they?
1: Yeah, it, it didn't last longer than that for them. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so we, we there was going to be the you know the, the core technology yep. which went great. And by the way, that that core technology we built um, lives on very very happily in a um, in the Linux Foundation is something called drone code, mm. which is the industry consortium. So all that open source software is there and, and you know used used uh, today by by hundreds of thousands of vehicles. So mm. Very proud of that. Um, the consumer phase went straight to china commodified you know at the speed of light and it wasn't just you know it, it'd be easy to you know to to you know regress to the old trope that chinese just copied and they made it cheap they didn't actually mm-hmm. dji you know i lived in china for four years with the economist oh, and really? yeah so in, you know so my family's in hong kong but i was mostly in, in, in Guangdong province and i saw the emergence of modern china and i knew this was huawei and companies like that at the time and I knew that, that they had amazing engineers and they weren't just copying. Um, what I didn't know, although I suspected, is that there's other elements of being a global giant, marketing, distribution, customer support, design, software, et cetera. It wasn't guaranteed that they would do that, but it was certainly possible. So I was expecting, a giant. I was expecting good things um, from our Chinese competitors, and I was prepared to compete with them because we had one thing that they didn't have, which is open innovation. Yeah, um, which is to say, we had you know essentially we could harness a community, whereas the Chinese model, uh, China, and we can talk about this. China to this day has not really embraced open source. Mm. They sort of use it, but they haven't. They haven't embraced the you know the, the ethos. Back, the ethos exactly. Yeah. Um, so we thought that was our core core you know core asset, and that would be sufficient that the community would innovate faster
0: than any one company. Mm. No, did not turn out to be the case. Even I, if the community had though, by dint of its open sourceness, would you not have been obligated to share the community's innovations with the world, and ergo with the competitor?
1: Uh, f- for sure um but the notion would be that by owning the community you would have unfair advantage mm-hmm. through some through some method yeah yeah you know it's been done before yeah yeah, yeah. you know there's, there's plenty of, of companies out there at WordPress for example you know Auto- automatic um yeah you know, is, yeah the Ubuntu um you know mySqL there's MySQL. yeah yeah it, yeah, it, yeah. Et so it can be done yeah, it, yeah and you know there's no reason why you know where were we a pure software company there's no reason why we couldn't you know, have done it, but unfortunately, with the hardware side of it, you need to. You know, you have an extremely expensive, you know, production process, and you yeah. get that wrong. Yeah, and now you're 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 underwater. You're sitting on all this yeah. stuff. And DJI innovated really well. They did not copy. They went global first. Mm. Very few Chinese start global. Chinese companies start global, and they did. Mm. They raised um, I don't know something in like a ten billion dollar valuation. They had six thousand employees. They're brilliant. They had great marketing. You know, no one has ever competed with it. I don't think anyone outside of China has competed with a company as good as DJI until DJI. Even the great Chinese companies in inside inside uh, you know China, the you know, the WeChat well, Tencents and, and, and Baidu's and Alibabas, et cetera, they tend not to be big outside of China. Right. Right. Um even like great hardware companies in China like Xiaomi. Um, tended not to be big outside of China. And yep. DJI was the first 21st century Chinese company that kind of took the Apple model and applied it outside of China first.
0: And lucky you to be the one to compete with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I it's be almost like you were competing with, <laughs> no, not at all. It's almost like you were competing with a China that you might have anticipated was 10 years out. Yeah. No, I mean, I,
1: every time I talk to people, they, they say, hey, yeah, so we're doing this like, you know, hardware, software, you know, we're doing this robot thing. And I'm like, you know, you, you do realize that there's lots of smart people in China doing this. And they're like, that's okay. We've got, you know, we've got, you know, th- I think three to five years before they catch up. And it's like you, three to five months.
0: <laughs> Trust me on this one.
1: Yeah, exactly. They're, they're already, they're already working on it right now. You just don't know about it.
0: Now, the year of the mighty pivot for this company was 2014. Um. Twenty.
1: Well. So the pivot was actually, um, t- uh, you know, sort of the end of 2015.
0: Okay. Got it. Um. So this
1: is when this is when you know the the consumer prices plummeted yep. by like 70 percent nine in nine months, oh. and what we'd expected would be a gradual bridging from consumer to commercial, from drones to data. Yeah. Turned out to be a sort of a leap from one ca- one, one cliff to another. Drones um, to data. Tell us what you mean by that. When you have to justify why are you fiddling with these, with these toys, you have to come up with an answer. And my justification was sensors in the sky. Mm -hmm. You know, so we, and we, we here, you and me and everybody else around us, whether we know it or not, has essentially one job. Mm -hmm. And that job is extend
0: the internet. The the job of Silicon Valley. The job of
1: Silicon Valley. The technology
0: industry. Extend the
1: internet. Extend Mm -hmm. the internet, you know, into your home, into your your desk, into your pocket, onto your wrist, into your car, into the city. Mm -hmm. And my little bit of that was extend the internet into the air. Mm -hmm. The air is weirdly empty. Um, It's empty because we put humans... You know, in harm's way by mm-hmm. having them fly. Yes. Which God knows, which God did not intend. When you extend the internet into the physical world, you do two great things. Number one is that you make you 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 measure the world so you can manage it better. Yeah, that's good. And the other is that everything you stick out there is smarter by dint of being connected to the internet. So you know the the world gets smarter mm. and the internet gets smarter.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And the error was just was just you know you don't you don't see markets you know, talk about blue ocean strategy. You don't yep. see very many markets that are ubiquitous and empty. Yeah. And the yeah. air is kind of ubiquitous, ubiquitous and empty. And it's true.
0: It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah. And
1: you look up and there's rarely something up there. Not so so that was the plan, um, sensors in the sky. And then, you know, and, and so that sensors in the sky means it's not about the drone. It's about what it got, ga- the data it gathers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we get into questions of like, well, what data is it gathering and what's it good for?
0: And, you know, how do you use it? And That's where we are today. Yeah. And so you were looking at a variety of markets to pivot into. And one of them was agricultural, I remember. And you've you've decided, well, actually, tell us what you decided on.
1: Well, so, you know, again, recognize that I'm I'm sort of justifying the notion that there's, you know, we're going to measure the world I don't really know what part of the world to measure. We have satellites as one example. Sure. and We have sensors in the ground as another example. You know, I don't know, um, traffic camps. If you know nothing about the physical world, because you live in your basement and you, and you, and you code, you, you sort of look out there and you sort of think, well, what are the big industries? And the biggest industry in the world is agriculture. Yep. And then you say, um, what do we know about agriculture? And, you know, the answer is, well, we need to feed more people and we need to be, you know, be it, be more productive, and then you, you do a little more work, and you realize that today agriculture is is industrial scale. We use monoculture. We use lots of chemicals, fungicides, herbicides, pesticides to you know keep productivity up and 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 you know pests disease at bay. And, but there's big environmental consequences mm-hmm. of of all that. Um, and uh, by the way, nobody works on farms anymore because yeah. of reasons. So you think well. You know, it sounds to me like if you measured, you know, like once upon a time, farmers used to walk their fields and they would know everything, but now farm fields are too big to, to walk and there aren't very many farmers. So we need to substitute for that kind of, you know, information, you know, awareness of the of, of, the, of the classic farmer with, with, with sensors. Mm. So, you know, maybe we should just measure agriculture and we should like, you know, hey, let's not spray pesticides prophylactically. Let's just wait till you get an outbreak. Lower the chemical load in the food and water etc. Increase yield. Passes the cocktail party test. Yeah. Hey, what do you do? I make drones. What are they for? We, we We map crops to feed the world.
0: We reduce pesticide use by X percent because we know where it's needed and where it's not. Totally. That would be a hit at a cocktail party. Clean the environment, feed the world. Yes. So that was a candidate. That was a candidate. Did it fail a subsequent post-cocktail party test? It did. It, it did, did sadly did. fail. Yeah. What fa- what test did it fail and why? Uh, the whole do farmers want it test. Ah, really? Why yeah. would they not want it? So they, we, they must spend a lot of money on pesticides and these things. They do. They do. Yeah. It's like it's like the number one um,
1: input cost yeah. is all that stuff. So it, it it turns out uh, um, that, first of all, there's no one agriculture. That rice is not corn, is not cows, and they're all different, and the different regions are all different, and small farms and big farms, yeah. et cetera. So that, that's one problem that you can't just sort of say you know, hey, I have an agricultural solution. They want to know you know, very specifically, do you have a rice fungus? What solution? are you doing for sorghum? Right. And have yeah. you calibrated against the rice specialists or the sorghum specialists? Yeah. So, you know, again, if you don't know much about ag, that's that's a hard answer to, to come up with. And even if you do know a lot about ag, it's a hard answer. The next thing is that it turns out that farmers do not feel pain the way you and I would feel pain. So let's just take yield. Mm. We assume farmers want to grow more food. We would think not always the case. Mm. Sometimes there's subsidies. Sometimes there's crop insurance. Sometimes there are government policies that discourage them to plant for fear it was going to lower the, you know, glut the market, lower prices and mm. things like that. You might assume that farmers would want to lower the chemical load in the, in the ground mm-hmm. and, and water, but you would be wrong. That's a negative externality. And that's, you know, it's free for
0: them it, to it's put, it's
1: yeah, free for them to, I mean, I'm not saying farmers want yeah, to, yeah, food, yeah, yeah. but they, but, but they, nonetheless,
0: they don't, they don't feel the pain of over-pesticizing exactly. other than the cost of the pesticide, which has got to be non-trivial. Right,
1: right. But, the, but yeah. you know, getting into the groundwater and moving on, you know, down, down, you know, d- down into the, uh, the food chain is not necessarily their problem. They're not charged for that. Yet. You might also yeah. think that in the middle of a drought that a farmer would want to conserve water. Mm-hmm. But if they have water rights that were secured decades ago, they might not.
0: Right. As we found in California, oftentimes the ability to wrest water from the farmers can be very, very constrained because exactly. of these ancient rights. So yeah.
1: Basically, I made the assumption that market forces were at play but it was in very agriculture, distorted. Agriculture. Yeah. And it's a very distorted market.
0: Got it. Got it. And then you'd have to understand each and every one of those distortions on a local basis, on exactly. a crop by crop crop basis. And it would help to be in Kansas. And it you would yeah, and it would and it would be hundreds and hundreds of weird micro markets that are subject to lobbying or something. Exactly. So you came to um, the built world I for did. lack of a better world. I did. So let's talk about that. Reality capture. Fear not, our technical listeners, we will talk about reality capture, just not today. We'll pick up right where we left off in the third and final installment of my conversation with Chris Anderson tomorrow. Of course, if you can't wait to hear the rest of it, or if you'd just like to browse my other 36, maybe it's 37 episodes, just head on over to my site at after-on.com or type the words after-on into your favorite podcast app. Before we wrap up, I'd like to note that throughout October, Medium.com has been running a series of essays that I've written on the subject of existential risk, which is to say the grim yet perversely fascinating possibility that our technological creations might just annihilate us. Although I'm of course biased, I do think I have a novel take on all this and present some arguments and analytical lenses that are new to the discussion about existential risk. If this interests you, please go to medium.com slash at symbol Rob Reed, and read is spelled R-E-I-D. That's medium.com, then a slash, followed by the at symbol, followed by Rob Reed. There's also a link to my Medium page on the Ars Technica page that's hosting this audio player. At least three and probably all four installments of that essay should be up on Medium, by the time you hear this. I should note that Medium is running this on their editorially curated paid members only section. The good news is they give everyone access to a few free articles per month with essentially zero friction. That's it for now. I hope you'll join me tomorrow for the conclusion of this conversation with Chris Anderson.